0: I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Revelation 3, looking at verses 1-6 through 6 as we study through the churches in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, beginning with these messages to the churches will soon give way in just a couple of weeks to uh, the events of the end times. And at that point, things are going to get a little bit um, uh, dynamic, I guess would be a good word. Uh, We're going to be doing a lot of scripture, a lot of back and forth, um, beginning with the teaching on the rapture and then going through the various aspects of what may uh, be and, and how things might be. But we still have three more churches to study through. With each church, by God's grace, we are learning how to assimilate those things which are right, those commendations of the churches, and then to guard our hearts, guide our our hearts, inspect our hearts, that we might avoid those things as a body which Christ rebukes these churches for. Revelation 3 verses 1 through 6 we are studying the church of Sardis. Sardis, if you remember back to Ephesus, the Bible says in regard to the church of Ephesus that they had lost their first love, that they were still doing the works, but the motivation, the foundation for their works had been lost. Sardis, we, we might regard it as being almost farther down the same path of Ephesus. When one loses their motivation, their first love, it is not long before they lose the works as well. And so as we step into the message today to Sardis, it's a impotent church, a dead church, a church which has not only lost its first love, but has lost its works as well. And from this, we'll glean some important warnings for the church as well as for our individual lives. We begin in verse 1. The Bible says, And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest, and art dead. So Sardis is a city that is uh, quite full of historical significance of these seven churches. Sardis was the capital of the ancient kingdom of Lydia until about 550 BC. So um, 550 BC, of course, we're talking about the time where Israel was already in captivity. Also uh, given this idea of him having the seven spirits of God. And we spoke about this in Revelation chapter one, the seven spirits of God. We won't go into it in its entirety again today, but, but we'll dwell on it for just another moment. Uh, We're quite familiar and I hope comfortable with the imagery of seven in the Bible. Seven is one of those significant numbers. It's a number of perfection or a number of completion. And we used a couple of different analogies last time. We talked about the week, right? And that uh, there's seven days in our week and that creates a completed week. And the completion of God's creation, he created everything in six days. And on the seventh day, it was complete. He rested and we see various elements of seven being a number of completion or a number of perfection. Many call it the divine number. I was given another great example of this a couple of weeks ago in Proverbs chapter 9 verse 1. The Bible says, Wisdom hath builded her house, she hath hewn out Her seven pillars. So, wisdom is described here as being built upon seven pillars, reflecting that wisdom in and of itself has a perfection or a completion to it, that it gives all things, it provides for all things necessary for a man to navigate this life with success, which is why Proverbs says, Get wisdom. And with thy getting, get understanding. Don't forsake her, for she will be to you all that you need. And so we have this idea that wisdom is built at her house and built it upon seven pillars. The house is complete, the house is finished. The seven spirits of God is symbolic of the function of the Spirit of God, with whom is all power, all wisdom. All knowledge. His function in the world is pervasive. It is everywhere. It is absolute. None can avoid his knowledge. David expressed it this way in Psalm 139, verses 7 through 13. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, Even there shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. We have here this idea of the Spirit of God that we cannot flee from. He's possessed our reins. He is everywhere. The light cannot hide us from God because His Spirit is everywhere. It is complete. It is finished. The seven Spirits of God, He is everywhere. Uh, Whether we go to the uttermost part of the sea, if I ascend into heaven, if I make my bed in hell, even there He will be there because His Spirit is there. Omnipresent. And this is the idea. So when the Bible says the seven spirits of God, it's not attempting to, to speak of a numerical number that the Spirit of God is divided into seven in that sense. But it is a symbolic idea reflecting unto us that the Spirit of God is all-powerful, all-holy, all-knowing, all-present. And perhaps even more important in our context, that the ministry of the Spirit of God within and among His people is all-powerful. This is very important. We have seen already from chapter 3, verse 1, that God says they have a name that they live, but they are dead. And when you see the Spirit of God and dead in the same context, you know there's something very, very wrong. Because the Spirit of God is life. The Spirit of God gives life to the church. The Spirit of God gives life to the church. To a believer, the Spirit of God is life. Romans chapter 8, verses 10 and 11, the Bible says, And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken, make alive, your mortal bodies by his Spirit. That dwelleth in you. It is the Spirit of God within you and I that enlivens our spirits and enables us to direct our bodies into the deeds and the thoughts and intents of righteousness. The Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead is in us and so can give us the power over sin can give us the power that we might live in righteousness as we are born into righteousness the moment that you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. We've talked over the last couple weeks in Luke about the power of the resurrection and the, and, and this, this idea of the power of the resurrection, that the power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that raises us from the dead, buried with Him by baptism into death, raised to walk in newness of life. This is that power This is the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God brings life. The Spirit of God brings liberty, 2 Corinthians 3.17 tells us. We go back a couple of verses in Romans chapter 8 and find out why it is so important. Verse 6 of Romans 8 says this, "...for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace." To be carnally minded is death. Death is not always speaking of physically dying. Death is separation. When we physically die, our material and our immaterial separate. That's what death is about. It's it's the, the separation of the immaterial part of us from the material part of us. There's this concept of spiritual death as well. The separation from the life that is in God through Christ. Paul says that those who are spiritually minded have their bodies quickened, made alive in the spirit, so that through this life they can serve God both in body and in mind. And the manifestations of the spirit of God in our bodies and minds is taught very clearly in Galatians chapter 5. We're memorizing for this month Galatians 5:16, which says this I say then walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. But what are those fruit of the, the fruit of the spirit? Beginning in verse 22, the Bible says this, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Life in the Spirit gives way to the fruit of the Spirit as we walk in the Spirit. We'll talk more about this in our application. Now, I've given you all of this today with an eye upon the church of Sardis. The commendation is barely a commendation at all. So we've said, and, and this is kind of established as you study these seven churches, we've said that throughout these seven churches, there are effectively two churches that have no rebuke and one church that has no commendation, right? Uh, generally speaking, we say Smyrna and Philadelphia have no rebuke and Laodicea gets no commendation. But I also mentioned that Pergamus could probably be said to have had to be a church that had no rebuke on itself. We studied that last week because in the passage on Pergamus, it wasn't the church that was being rebuked, right? It was the cancer within the church. It was the woman Jezebel, the prophetess and those that followed her. And and Jesus said, I rebuke them, and I've given them space to repent, and they have not repented, so I will destroy them. And then he says, but to the church, just hold fast, right? Just keep hanging on. And so we might say that Pergamus did not actually have a rebuke against the church as clearly as, as some of the others. And in the same way, we could really say that Sardis has no commendation, uh, though we see this little thing here where he says... I know that works, but then the thing that he says he knows of them is that they have a name that they live, but they're dead. It's not much of a commendation, is it? Uh, it it's really more of a of a of a rebuke in and of itself. They're dead. They have no life. Now we might liken this to what's happening in many formerly reputable as I think about this when I think of the idea of having a name that one lives but are dead I think of uh, formerly reputable companies today used to be that there are certain appliance companies, certain tool companies where you bought them, and you didn't really have to do the research, right? You knew that if you bought from the company that you were going to get a good product. You knew that if you bought that that, that company's appliance, if you bought that company's tool, you were going to get a new product or a good product. But then something happened to these companies. Uh, they they were, were losing money because uh, there were uh, imported tools and imported appliances, and they were a lot cheaper, and people were like, well, this one's a lot cheaper than that one, and they didn't see the value. So uh, then the... The more expensive brands started using cheaper components and then you have built-in obsolescence and next thing you know they end up selling their name to some Chinese company who just wants the name so that they can have the the reputation that comes with the brand on their tools or their appliances which are nowhere nearly as good and the next thing you know you've got these companies that have a name that they live but they're garbage right they still have the name and you can think back 20 years, 15 years, 10 years and say, yep, yeah, that was a name that used to mean something where I knew that if I bought that tool or if I bought that appliance, I'd be getting a good one. So much so that you might even go around looking for the old ones, right? You go around looking for the old KitchenAid, the old Craftsman Tools, the old Kenmore Appliances because you know that they actually worked and that they were going to last longer than if you bought a new one, right? Uh, and that they'll, they'll do a better job. This is kind of that idea. They have a name that they're living, but they're dead. Once the name stood for something noteworthy, now it stands for little to nothing at all. The church claimed the name of Christ. They claimed the distinctions. But for all of their claims to some Christian distinctions, they were dead. And as we've tried to link it this morning, that means that the Spirit of God was not working in their midst. They were a church living in contradiction to their title. They claimed the name of Christ, but in works they denied Him. We'll come back to that in a few moments in our application time. Continuing in verse 2, this is what the Lord exhorts of them. He says, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. The exhortation to be watchful. That word meaning to give attention, to be cautious, to watch. And it's here that we might draw a brief parallel to the history of the city itself. I try to be careful in these the, the history of these seven churches that we're, we're not so busy linking the message to the historical Relationship of the city itself that we lo- that we get a little bit distracted. We need to be careful when we try to take that which archaeology and history tells us and make it foundational to the meaning of the text, because that gets sticky. If if I can't open the Word of God and through the Spirit of God understand what the Word of God is trying to tell me, then um, the the Word of God being the best commentary for itself. Uh, then, then this book th- is not the timeless thing that God says it to be. If I have to rely upon archaeology to understand the message, then the book is not what God has claimed it to be, which is timeless and fully profitable. So we need to be careful with this. But that doesn't mean that the book was not written in a certain time to a certain people within a certain context, right? Right? And in this time, to this people within this context, what we find is that they were in a city which every single time it had ever fallen within the history of their city, it was because they failed to be watchful. It was because they were not taking care of the natural defenses that they had. There was no way that this city would be able to very successfully be besieged if they were being watchful. But when they drop their guard, when they're not paying attention, when they get overly confident, when they stop caring, that's when the city would fall. And so it might be interesting to connect this to the message that the Spirit of God gives to the church there. Be watchful. Strengthen the things that remain because you're dead while you're living. You have a name and within that name, there is there there's power. The, 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 the reality of the church of God has been one of power in the early church. The Spirit of God we know is powerful. And they were claiming the Spirit of God and the name of God, and yet they didn't have the power of the Spirit of God. They were dead. Not a failure of capacity, though. It was a failure of attention. It's not that the power wasn't there. It's that they weren't tapping into it. To this end, Jesus counsels them that they would wake up. And in this awakening, that they would strengthen whatever virtues in their midst still remained. Those virtues were on life support at this point. There was little left of spiritual life and value within this church. But all was not lost. And the call was that they would begin carefully nurturing that which remains. If you've ever had a plant that's nearly dead and you've had to prune it back to the very, to just to its effectively its, its, its trunk or its stem, and then you have to just so carefully nurture it, hoping that maybe it'll grow back and that you can kind of bring it back off of life support. That's where Sardis was. Because their works were not perfect before God. Now, the concept of perfection, we've spoken of it Before. Perfection does not mean sinless in its most basic sense in the Bible. We often define it at Legacy Baptist Church this way. Perfection is finished or complete, having all that is necessary for its nature or its kind. Finished or complete, having all that is necessary for its nature or kind. The idea of perfection is is completion, literally to fill up to the top. Perhaps you've gone somewhere before and you've ordered a cup of frozen yogurt and you've ordered this cup of frozen yogurt and you've watched the person, probably some young kid, filling it and it gets to about three quarters full and he stops and he brings it up and he gives you this three quarter full cup of frozen yogurt. And while you're very happy to have the frozen yogurt, there's something deeply offensive about paying for a cup of frozen yogurt and only getting three-fourths a cup of frozen yogurt. And you, you, you want that cup perfected. You want that cup perfected to the full and running over, in fact, right? You want the fullness that you've asked for. The perf- it's just it's not complete. You pay for a cup of frozen yogurt. Give me a cup of frozen yogurt. I'd like it to be perfected. That's the idea here. The idea is completion. It is that it, is, it meets every qualification of its nature and its kind to fill to completion. And God says they were not perfect before him. They were not complete. They were not finished. They were not what they ought to be in him. Now we know from scriptures that it is the perfect heart that God seeks. And of whom God desires, Second Corinthians, no, excuse me, Second Chronicle sixteen, verse nine. The first half of that verse says this: For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show Himself strong on behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward Him. God is speaking to Asa, the king of Judah, through the prophet named Hanani. The king had failed to trust the Lord, and for this reason, God had found his works imperfect. Lacking in completion, lacking in fulfillment before him. And God reminds the king that what he seeks is not the man who, who does no wrong. The man who in and of himself is, is sinlessly perfect because that man does not exist. Say Outside of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, of course. But what God seeks is a man whose heart is perfect, filled to completion toward God, whose heart is directed without variance, not sitting on the fence, not with one hand or one foot or even one toe uh, outside of faith and loyalty to the Lord, but whose heart is fully invested in faith toward the Lord. You recognize his authority, authority. You seek his will. You understand and believe his promises and you've invested in them. It doesn't mean you don't falter. It doesn't mean you don't fail. It doesn't mean you never, uh, you never lose sight. But what it means is that your heart is directed toward God's ends and towards God, God's purposes and you are determined that you will be where God, where God is. As Moses said, when he was bringing the people of, Uh, of Israel out of Egypt. He says to the Lord, if you go not with me, carry us not up hence. Moses wanted to be where God was because he knew that was the place of blessing. Sardis was dying. It had fallen short of an understanding of the character of God and of what it meant to them to be followers of Christ. They had no power because they didn't believe Christ's promises and they lacked the power of the Spirit of God in their midst as they failed, as they fell short of faith. So God says this in verse three He tells them, Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast, and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. So in verse 3, the Lord calls the church to remember these things that they have seen and things that they have heard. To recall to their minds the power of God. To remember the days where the Spirit of God was working in their midst. To remember what God had once done. To recall. To think back to a time where God was real in their church, working in their church where they were not dead. To remember the teachings of the Word of God and the promises it contained. And then he says, hold fast, attend unto, guard, observe those things, and repent. Observe the things that were once, that aren't anymore, and then turn back to them. Change your mind, get back to that point. Observe it with care, with a warning, that if they do not, that Christ would come upon them as a thief. Two things about this. First, notice nowhere in the text do we see a chat that time, which means what? If you don't want your house to be, to be burglarized, if you don't want stuff taken, then you have to always be ready. You have to always be prepared. You have to live in a constant state of preparedness, lest when the thief comes, he be able to do what he wants to do without issue. So we lock our doors. So we lock our windows. So we have alarm systems and cameras and whatever else we might want to do in our age in order to make sure that the thief never has a time where it's easy, right? Where there's never a time where the thief says the the house is unguarded and the house is unwatched and the house is open and I can just come in and take what I will. And that is the idea here. That is the illustration. The good man of the house must always be ready so that he can prevent the success of a thief. Now, God is not a Right, He's not coming to steal anything from us. The point is not about God within these warnings. The point is about us. The point is that our life is a vapor. We could die or the Lord could come. And those things can happen at any moment, which means we need to be living in a state of constant preparedness so that when He comes, right here at the end in chapter 24, verse 46, He finds us so doing. He doesn't find us sleeping. He doesn't find us taking a break from serving him. He finds us busy. There are rewards to those who, when the master returns, have something to show to him. And if that is the case, then we should always be doing, always be ready, because we do not know when our Lord will return. There's no time to sleep, not physically, spiritually, metaphorically, because Jesus could come at any time and he could require of us the marks of our faithfulness. The same phrase is used both by Paul and Peter, speaking of end times events. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 and 2, But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Again, this is not speaking of the character of God, but this is speaking of us, of preparedness, of how we ought to recognize the Lord's coming, that he could come at any moment. And just as a thief could come at any moment, that whether it's day or day, or night the thief is going to come at a time when it is most advantageous and profitable for him right? Not when it's most advantageous and profitable for me. He's working on his timetable for his purposes not my timetable for my purposes and if I want to thwart his purposes or be prepared for his purposes then I need to, to, to be prepared at all times so that he doesn't have a window. Now again this is not us trying to prevent the Lord's coming. That would be taking this metaphor way too far. The point is this. He is coming. We need to be ready. 2 Peter 3, verses 9 and 10. Peter says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promises, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, But that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great voice, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. To this end we see the warning. Once again, not a warning that the saved will fall short of salvation, but rather that the church is in grave danger of falling short of the rewards of God for those that are found, that for the rewards that come to those who are found so doing. The church will have nothing to show for itself because it has a name that it lives, but it's dead. And God says this should cause you to be awakened in yourself. Cause you to realize that if the master were to come today, I've got nothing to show for it or very little to show, and I need to get up and I need to get busy. I don't know how the children in here are, but back in my younger days, there would be uh, my my parents would go to work perhaps when we were on uh, summer break or whatnot, and uh, my mom would give us a chore list for the day. And we'd have a list of to-dos for the day, and we would live our day in any manner of ways. And then it's getting near the end of the day. Mom's coming home in 15 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, whatever it might be on any given day. And you start looking over that list, right? Because mom and dad are going to be home and there's going to be a reckoning and things need to get done. And this list needs to get done. And so at the beginning of the day, you kind of, you kind of judge how long those things are going to take. And then you kind of see how much time toward the end of the day you're going to need. And then you get that list. The, 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 the proper child would just say, let's get it all done first, right? But, I mean, who does that? So we, we would do that and then something might come up and you get distracted or you get busy or something else happens and now you don't have enough time and then you get home and and mom mom or dad gets home and things aren't done that we're supposed to get done and then there's a reckoning. The warning is that there are things to get done and let's not slumber and let's not sleep and let's not assume that our Heavenly Father is going to come at a certain time. Maybe it is that He's going to get home an hour early on any given day and the things just haven't been done yet but they were on the list it should awaken our sensibility to get the work done that needs to be done lest our church have nothing to show for itself lest we have nothing to show for ourselves and this is the warning as connected through the concept of the thief to the accountability on the day of the Lord verse 4 The Lord says, Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Lest this rebuke be too sweeping, as if there's nothing of note or any positive to the church, Jesus does mention that there are a few names which have not defiled their garments. Now this is an interesting thing. Why did he call them names rather than people? There are a few names. Instead of individuals that have not defiled their garments, there are two primary theories as to why this is. There's some that connect this to the idea of the names being written in the book of life. And so the Lord's saying here that there are a few people whose names are written in the book of life. He's seeing them as their name because their name is written in the book of life. And so there are a few names who have not defiled their garments. But they will walk with him in white for they are worthy, thus being clothed in the worthiness of Jesus Christ by their name being written in the book of life and such. That's a possibility. There's a second possibility. And the other theory is that um, the names, the idea of using names instead of individuals is because the Lord is talking about some family units. So there were a few family units within the church that have not defiled themselves. There are a few family units that are walking. And and as with a, a typical family unit, they're defined by their name, right? Uh, So my family, we are the Wicklers, and if you wanted to lot us all in, then you'd say the Wicklers are coming, aren't coming, the Wicklers were here, the Wicklers weren't here, and you you know that that means the entire unit as a whole. So it could be that there were a few names, a few units, a few family names that had not defiled themselves, that were walking in faithfulness. In which case, this would not be a statement of their salvation, but would rather simply be a statement of their faithfulness. If I were to choose between the two, I think both are, are valid and interesting in their own ways. I, I kind of like the, the family unit idea. Uh, I see within this um, an, an idea of uh, not, not so much an idea of salvation as, as of rewards and faithfulness here. And as such, I don't know that this is a statement of names being written in the book of life versus those that are not written in the book of life as much as it's perhaps faithfulness versus slumber. However, um, either one is certainly valid and they both have their own pros and cons as far as it goes. One way or another, the worthiness is not the worthiness of ourselves, but it's the worthiness of our Lord who is the one who has clothed us in righteousness. In verses 5 and 6, we see the end, the promise to the overcomer. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches, So the letter finishes with this hopeful promise to all overcomers. And once again here, notice we do see the emphasis on the name. This would lend itself toward that first idea that the names are names written in the book of life. Speaking to the overcomers, he says that all who are overcomers, their names will not be blotted out. They cannot indeed, for they are overcomers out of the book of life. His name will be confessed before the Father and before his angels. There's a promise here. Being clothed in white raiment, of course, is a scriptural symbol of purity. A promise that their names will not be blotted out of the book of life. If we interpret these promises as saying that believer must persevere, then of course there's a danger of of his name being blotted out of the book of life. But that's not what this is saying. This is saying that, that as an overcomer, your name will not be blotted out of the book of life. Christ broadening his perspective, reminding all believers of this hopeful blessing and promise that if you've accepted Christ, you are an overcomer. Therefore, your name is in the book of life and it does not get blotted out. It's not a threat. Every single time we've seen these two, the overcomers, we are recognizing and interpreting them not as threats, that if you do overcome, you'll get this. If you don't overcome, you won't get this. But rather, it's a hopeful promise that you who are overcomers, you who have accepted Christ, remember, this is what you have to look forward to. It's not a threat. It's a promise, a hopeful reminder of the security under which we rest because our names will not be blotted out of the book of life. Our name will be confessed before the Father. So Christ promised in Luke chapter 12, verse 8, Also I say unto you, Whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. We find then at last a call to all who have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We'll apply in the last of our time together this morning. And while there's many directions we could go, I'd like to ask three questions of you as we close our text this morning. Number one... Does the name you live match the life you live? Does the name you live match the life you live? I don't know the salvation testimony of everyone in this room. I know that there are some of our younger people and perhaps others who have not actually accepted Christ as their Savior. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are not one of His. But it it might it, it, it is primarily here, with, again, perhaps the exception of a few of our younger people, that those that are among us this morning claim the name of Christ, claim Christian in some capacity. You have a name that you live. Does it reflect your life? You've probably noticed for a very significant number of years now that the label Christian means very little in society. This is not a new phenomenon. In fact, the name Christian has been heavily misrepresented for a large portion of the last 2,000 years since the church began. And the reason why this label has come to mean so little is because most of the people who carry this name carry the name but are dead. They represent themselves as Christians but they aren't living like Christians. They don't bear the marks of a Christian. They don't have the fruit of of the spirit. They're not living in distinction. They're not living separated from the world. They don't love the things of the Lord more than the things of the world. They are desirous of mammon, and Jesus says you cannot serve God and mammon. If you were to go up to someone on the street and ask them what a Christian is, you'd g- you'd get many answers, wouldn't you? Many different perspectives. But you know the word Christian literally means little Christ. It was a derogatory term that was given first to the church, the, the, the believers at the church of Antioch, who at the time, and you find this in the book of Acts, they called themselves members of the way. And then they started being called Christians in Antioch as a term of, uh, of derision, those, those Christians, those little Christs. And the church at Antioch, the people there, um considered this term and and wore it as a badge of honor because i mean think about it if jesus's entire message was follow me and you've got the unbelievers around you calling you a little christ you've done your job right you're you're following so much they're associating with you you with christ so distinctly that they're calling you little Christ's. so they wore this as a badge of honor in like manner we call ourselves the church. The church is called the body of Christ is designated to identify and submit with the expectations of Christ by word and deed. This is what it means to be the church. The church is not a building. The church is not a checkbook. The church is not seats and and lights. The church is the body. But in every generation, these labels have been redefined and repurposed and realigned in order to fit the whims and the desires of that society, in order to give people an association while simultaneously asking nothing of them. And this has been the way that it's been since the beginning of the church. We won't expect it to change as a whole until the Lord comes. But the question for us today, as we zoom in to us, is what about Legacy Baptist Church? What about you, Christian? Are you one of the people who is living a name? You call yourself a Christian. You claim the name, but it in no way reflects the life that you live. A name, which most, if not all of us in this room, would gladly bear in many situations, But are you actually living like Christ? Or are you a hypocrite? You claim the name, but your life, your actions, your demeanor, your intent look nothing like Christ. Now the label has its benefits. Christian. You want others to think you're something. You care about the things of Christ. But while you carry the label, you deny Christ in your works, in your thoughts, in your intents. You have a name that you're living, but you're dead. You deny Him in what you love. You deny Him in how you speak. You deny Him in your intentions. You deny Him in your associations. But you still have the title because the title is important to you for some reason. Maybe it's to ease your conscience. Maybe it's in regard to the traditions of your family. It keeps you from facing the realities of the very thing we're considering this morning that maybe you live and think and act nothing like a Christian. But let it not be so among us, brethren. Because while the label might have some earthly advantages, at least in our culture and time, and that's changing rapidly, right? While bearing the name of a follower of Christ might have some emotional or or family advantages, you don't fool God. No one can fool God. You can claim whatever you want on this earth, but there's coming a day where we'll stand before the judge. And as we already read in Psalm 139, Whither shall I flee from thy spirit? We can't hide from him. Even the darkness is light about him. Let it not be so among us. Where it really counts in eternity, the labels you bear in this life mean nothing. Paul writes to Timothy, Nevertheless the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal The Lord knoweth them that are his, and let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and of earth, some to honor, some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. The Lord knows who are his regardless of the labels or lack thereof that we place upon ourselves. But if you name the name of Christ, then put some meaning behind that name. Then put some power behind that claim and depart from iniquity. Don't drag Christ's name through the mud by claiming Him while living in squalor of sin and selfishness. Paul says, in any house there are things of honor and there are things of dishonor. Things of value and things that lack value. My wife and I get together... We put out the stem glasses. We put out the nice plates. When my children are there, we use a lot of plastic. There are certain plates that are under honor. There are certain plates that are under dishonor. There are certain ones that are easy to to, to be broken. There are certain ones that are not. In every house, it's this way, right? There's the plastic and there's the porcelain. There's the china. Those that name the name of Christ but persist in the poor testimony of living... They're the vessels unto dishonor. You're you're not doing the house of God any good. You're the clutter that at best deserves to be garage-sailed. At worst, it ends up in the trash pile. If you claim the name of Christ, then be some use to him, to his church. Be a vessel of honor, and every vessel of honor sanctifies himself. He's meat for the master's use. He purges himself from these. Does your... Does the name you live match the life you live? I really should reverse that. Does the life you live match the name you live? If you name the name of Christ, are you living it? Number two, is the life of the Spirit alive in you? It is notable that in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, we're only some 40 or 50 years with all of its affections and lusts and rather abound in the power of the Spirit unto a life that is wholly distinct from the priorities and the desires of the world that is around us. The question is, is that you this morning? Are you distinct from the world around you? Not always different. We talked about this in Sunday school, right? You're not always going to look different from the world around you in, in that a person will look at you and say, wow, the way you're, 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 you're dressed and, and these sorts of things, you must be a Christian. Sometimes that is, depending on your audience, right? Depending on your environment, they will just look at you and say, wow, there's something different about them. But the question is, are you distinct? Is the manner of living, is the mindset, is everything about your direction in life directed toward Christ so that when somebody interacts with you, they say there is something different about the way this person is, not lives, but is. One of the interesting and very telling elements of the church at large is that the church is often little more of a, a microcosm of the broader world around them. If we were to pull any given church in any given community of any reasonable size, you might find the same number of people with the same number of problems pursuing the solutions in the same ways as the world around them. But if the Spirit of God is alive and well within us, this will not be so. Now, I'm not saying we won't have problems by any means. As a matter of fact, our problems might increase. But if the Spirit of God is alive and well in us, changing us from the inside out, when His power is flowing in us and through us, He will work in us an entirely different path. Changing our desires, renewing our intentions, causing us to be a group of people who are distinct, and the world won't understand, some won't like it, some will be drawn to it because their eyes are open to the light. Is the life of the very Spirit of the living God alive in you? Does Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, is this your operating, standard operating procedure? Are you defined by love A care for others, even at your own expense. Joy, the abiding contentment of life regardless of circumstances. Peace, a sense of restfulness regardless of circumstances. Long-suffering, patience with yourself and others. Gentleness, a care, a softness in word and in deed. Goodness, a desire and a love for that which is right and a desire to see others pursue the same. Faith, an overarching trust in God in the midst of regardless of circumstances, meekness, strength under control, harnessed to do the will of God, temperance, the rest of you under control, so that no one object or desire dictates your actions, motives, and priorities other than the Spirit of God that is in you. If this is not you on a regular basis, if this is not you. I, I'm not saying it's not always you. We all. We, we, we're, we're sinful, right? This is. I'm not saying this is. This is. This is you. Twenty-four-seven, three-sixty-five. But if this is not you, if this is not the life you live that connects to the name you live, there's something wrong. I'm not saying you're not a believer intrinsically. Although we should search ourselves, we always should. But there is something wrong and I don't intend to sound mean or judgmental by that, all I'm saying is that this is the description that the Word of God gives of a properly adjusted follower of Jesus Christ. They that are Christ have crucified the flesh with their affections and lusts. Now, this does not mean that, again, 24-7, 365, if that were the case, then all the New Testament would have to do would be to preach salvation, right? Right? Because once you're saved, this is going to happen. So the entire New Testament would be nothing but believe if the moment you believed, all of this was there. But That's not the case. So we still have to work. We have to submit. We have to die daily. But what the Bible is telling us, the whole of the biblical record tells us, is that this, through the Spirit, this desire, this set-apart, this distinction, this separation, sanctification, this is the normal Christian life. So I guess the better question is, are you a normal, regular, functioning Christian, or is there something wrong? Are you broken, some way? Final question as we close. First question: Does the name of uh, does the name you live match the life you live? Second question: Is the life of the spirit alive in you? Third and final question: Are you spiritually asleep? Christ warned his followers that he would return and that his rewards would be with him. We see in several parables the promise that those who labor for Christ in this earth and bring forth great fruit will be mightily rewarded in some way, shape, or form in the kingdom of God. And while we won't get there for a while, one of the final statements of this epistle itself that we read, Revelation 22, verses 12 and 13, the Lord Jesus Christ says this, And behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Let us take heed. Jesus is coming. We don't know when, but when he comes, will you have anything, spiritually speaking, to show for it? Or are you asleep? Are you coasting through this life, saved yet so as by fire, but without any spiritual fruit to show, for the time when our Lord would return, and who knows these things better than those in whom the Spirit of God is most active? Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter two, verses nine through eleven. But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard. Neither hath entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of man, save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Here's the thing. If you want to be impressed upon with the blessings of faith, you have to take the step of faith first. Faith always precedes blessing. You don't even know what you're missing until you've found it. <laughs> Can I put it that way? It's not until you step out by faith and start to live the life and start to see what it is and start to understand what's going on that the Spirit of God reveals to you the blessings and then you realize that there's something so much greater on the other end. If you're sitting here saying, I don't get it. This whole idea of rewards on the other end. But this is life, this is now. It's because you haven't taken the step of faith whereby you start seeing the Spirit of God work in you whereby He'll reveal these things in you. One final verse to this point before we close. Paul's writing to the church in Rome and he writes a very similar thing to this final point. He writes this in Romans chapter 13, verses 11 to 14. He says, And that, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill it. To, excuse me, to fulfill the lusts thereof. Paul tells us it's time to wake up to reality. To what's real. Sardis was a church that was dead while they were living. They had a name that they lived but they were dead. They they had lost sight of the fact that there's something so much bigger, something so much more on the horizon for us, but it can only be understood by faith. Are you living it today? Have you stepped out in faith? Is the Spirit of God commending itself to your conscience on this regard? How are you doing? Are you like those in Sardis? Are we as a church like Sardis? Do we have a name that we live, but we are dead as a church? We need to judge ourselves. We need to consider ourselves. We need to inspect ourselves, individually and corporately. The wise man will hear and obey. The foolish man passes on and is punished. May God help us to be a church, families, individuals, that's not just here, but alive. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota.